On this episode of Year One, we speak to Shannon, CEO and founder of Afloat, a digital social club for watercraft owners. Shannon is a kick-ass entrepreneur. She's humble, driven, passionate, and making waves in the male-dominated watercraft community. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early-stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Shannon, the very first question that we ask all of our guests is the following. What made you decide to become an entrepreneur? What was that pivotal moment in your life that you said, I'm going to take this and do my own thing? I have a very easy answer for that. It really came down to knowing other people who were doing it and being a part of their very early journey where I'm like, you know what? I could do this too. And I think that's going to be a big part of my journey moving forward is trying to inspire other people to realize like their own talents and where those may lie. But it really came down to actually watching Sonia Gills, who Satish and I know very well. I worked with her very closely on a couple of her projects and I watched what she could do. And I'm like, there's no reason I can't do this too. Shout out to Sonia. Yeah. So if it wasn't for that, would you have gone down this path? If you didn't actually have someone that was going on this journey at the same time, would you have done it? That's really the butterfly effect like question, like, how did I get here? I have no idea, like how many things needed to happen to, to get me here. I don't think that there's a definitive answer for that, but I definitely feel that I was inspired by a few people in my close circle. And that's why I'm here. I think you need to come across somebody who's doing something spectacular to realize that you can also do something spectacular. No, I, I love that. And the title of CEO sometimes is scary for people because you put a lot of emotional weight into it. But for me, it's really about leadership and your career. You've been a leader already, right? In the communication industry. So talk to me a little bit about what does this title of chief executive officer mean as you've now updated your LinkedIn, went from partner to, or senior communications director to senior account director to now chief executive officer. I got to say that I did not want to change that on my LinkedIn for the longest time. I had founder for the first, like, so we're coming up on a year now uh, for a float. And I think I only changed it two months ago to CEO and founder. I think it's a little bit, I feel as a woman specifically that there's a lot of imposter syndrome there. Am I really leading this team? My team is all men. I'm the only female within my team right now, which I hope to change in the near future, but I definitely shied away from saying CEO. It just, it felt so foreign to me. And I'm like, ah, I'm not really a CEO. Like we're not really a company. Like we're just, we're like a tiny little startup trying to do our thing. And yeah, I, it took, it was a few people that pushed me into putting the CEO title. So I can even, I can't even take credit for it. It definitely was not something that I was willing to do right away. I think what we need to do is we call this the bar hour or the bar section, right? Can you succinctly tell our listeners what is a float? Yes, actually, I really honed this pitch. I was at the Miami Boat Show last weekend. Okay, elevator pitch. Here it is. It's next door meets Facebook for watercraft. And when I say watercraft, boat, paddlers, jet skiers. That's what we do. It's very simple. We connect people. We help them peer-to-peer -peer knowledge share. 
yeah, it's heavily needed in a very booming recreation like boating. So was it born out of necessity, a gap in the market or something that you're interested in? That's a really great question because I would say that the thing that I've struggled with most, especially with crafting my investor deck, which I mean, like any CEO, any founder will tell you is probably your most important piece of material. We are addressing so many consumer like pain points. So how do we succinctly say what we're doing at the same time, talk about the opportunity that exists here? Because it, it is, we are solving a problem. Absolutely. But we're also providing this really great opportunity for people to connect on the water. So I, I think your question is really good. I struggle with it constantly because I feel it's more of an opportunity area than it is a pain point. But when you drill it down and you start talking to people who own watercraft and you start talking about the nuance of the recreation, you discover all of these different pain points. And really all, all it boils down to is that these people need to talk to each other, they need to educate each other, they need to knowledge share need to connect. And so that's how I'm starting to talk about it now. While we are solving a problem, this is a massive opportunity because it is like boaters and people who go out on the water, they're the most social community that ever existed. For them not to have some kind of vertical network to connect is a missed opportunity. It's a very interesting way to describe your addressable market, which Every investor will ask you and anybody that I've ever met from a startup perspective, what they struggle to identify is what is my addressable market and where is their current attention? Because we're all focused somewhere else and your startup needs to steal their attention per se. And then if you offer a better value for their attention, they're going to keep it with you longer. So in your world, where are they currently looking for? solutions to the problem you're solving that you need to pull them away from? It's different because we are addressing so many different lifestyles, right? So as I mentioned, we are addressing the yacht lifestyle. We are addressing the PW lifestyle or PWC lifestyle, which is like jet skiers, EMR owners, all that. We're addressing the paddlers. They all have very unique and very unique and very pain points. So when it comes to addressing what they need, I really have to break it down in a marketing sense per watercraft category. So a paddler's needs are going to be very different than somebody who owns a 30-foot yacht. A PwC owner's needs are going to be very different from a paddler's needs. So when it comes to helping them understand where we add value, we have to be very focused in our marketing communication to say, hey, you just bought a boat. And it's trailerable. You can take it anywhere in the world that you want. You want to find like a boat ramp, a new lake to go to, and you don't understand what the boat ramp grade is, the hours, the, whether you can fish there, whether you can even have a motorized watercraft on that lake. That's where we solve those problems. But we have to be so focused and nuanced in our marketing communications, which is difficult. One of the things that I talk to my advisors about all the time is a lot of companies die because of digestion and not starvation. And there's so much that we could actually address, but we need to be hyper-focused in our communications to make sure that we are actually just getting to the MVP that is going to solve some of these problems, but we're not going to solve world hunger in a day kind of thing. So I'm an ideas person, <laughs> big time. So everybody's always trying to reel me in on what we can actually accomplish. And so I'm just, I'm trying to stay focused and, uh, and yeah, not over, over consume with ideas. I'm going to speak for both Dion and I, because I feel like we had 
similar reaction with your comment. We need more on this digestion versus starving because very few guests, when they say something, we're both like, what just happened? We need more <laughs> of that. So break that down a little bit more, man. That's a huge concept. Yeah, I would be happy to. So I was actually talking to a gentleman over at Shopify who's, who's had a product over there. And he loves the idea of what we're doing. And then I started getting into, okay, our MVP is XYZ. We're going to connect people. We're going to help them discover new places. We're going to provide just peer-to-peer knowledge sharing. Very simple. And then I get into this diatribe of, oh, and then we can add navigation and we can add sophisticated weather forecasting. We can add anchorage reviews, provisioning information, all of these different function builds that while valuable will take a little bit of time to actually bring to market. And then he goes... And I'm like, okay, he talked to me and he listened. He, it's, it, you need to get to MVP. You don't want to, you don't want to have too many ideas, figure out what the, and this just, this goes back to breaking down what an MVP means, minimal viable product. I think what happens in our first year, especially as like, I'm a creative, that's my background, is that I have so many ideas. I, I want to pull them all down and put them in the MVP, but I need to figure out and distill down what is that minimal viable product that my, my users will care about and then build from there? When it comes to the starvation side, it's really simple. It's okay, let's not be glut in our approach to our model. Let's scale it down, get it to a bare skeleton and then build from there. So it's really simple. I think it's something that I constantly hear from people that I talk to in Silicon Valley. It's really just focused in on exactly what you need. What is that minimal viable product? And then build from there. But until you get that atomic network, it is in Andrew Chen's like recent book. It's really good. I definitely recommend picking it up. Serve that, that one piece of your market, serve them well, and then build from there. I think we could almost end the podcast right there. Yeah, we've got everything from you that we needed. But Shannon, we talk about an MVP. We talk about you've found an opportunity in the marketplace and, and the things like that, but there must also be a passion and a drive and things like that. Where did that love for the sector actually come? I've been sailing since I was nine years old. My parents are actually, I'm in Florida right now at my parents' house, which is very typical of a, somebody who's in a startup, a, a founder in a startup, but they're out there floating on a motorized raft. So like my love of the water started very early. I was sailing since I was nine. Um, I'm an avid uh, surfer, paddle boarder. Well, I try to surf. I'm, I'm no good, but I'm working on it. So I've always wanted to be in this industry. And it's, I, I got to say, it, it's interesting to be a woman in this industry because it is a little boys club. It's highly underserved in tech, but people are starting to realize that now there's all these disruptors coming up in the industry in maritime. So it's an exciting time to be a part of it, not to mention what COVID's done to this, to outdoor recreation in general, right? Like we're talking massive booms and boats, like they can't keep boats on the market anymore. But yeah, like back to your question, I've always wanted to do something in this. I've always been attracted to the water. I love it. So it's just, it's something I'm passionate about. And Lord knows I needed to get out of like PR and marketing. I want to go back to a point that you made. So this is, you referenced now that it's quite a male dominated space. And you also said that you are a female CEO working with males. How has that been for you in terms of how have you dealt with that? Have you had resistance? Have you had pushback? Did you have to change how you are as a person to actually work in this environment? I would have to answer no, but I think it's different for everybody. I think it's the very, it's, I think it's very subjective. I've always had that leadership quality about me. I think I can command a room, but I do feel that there is, I do feel at the end of the day, that's not indicative 
of a lot of female execs simply because of societal pressures to maybe not always speak their mind, not always be the loudest one in the room. But ultimately, I think, and I think this advice goes for anybody because I, I just got off the phone with an investor who absolutely, who's a female, huge player. And she finds that oh, it's just like the killer of any kind of really good relationship between an investor, a team, and or a founder. And so I, I try to work with as much humility as possible. And I think in any relationship, male, female, whatever it may be, non-binary, whatever, bringing a level of humility to the conversation always just welcome respect. I think if you're, if you want to command respect, you need to walk in understanding that you're not the smartest person in the room. I always tell it every investor I meet, I'm like, listen, I'm the least impressive person on my team. And that always like generates like, just, just like you did a little giggle. And I think it goes a long way. I think humility goes a long way, no matter who you are, male or female. That would be a piece of advice I'd give male or female founders anywhere. Just yeah. you don't know what you don't know. You don't. Yeah. And you got to get burned a couple of times to develop that. There's no easy way to learn that. And you got to learn on the job. And this stuff that you're building, it's a tech platform. And most first-time founders are scared because unless you're, you've got a technical background, you get into a business where your solution is a tech platform. Now you got to worry about resourcing it, hiring people that you've never hired before, even figuring out how to budget this thing and burn rate control and all this stuff. Walk to us, talk to us a little bit about that process. Did you have somebody on your team that was technically ready? How did you figure out how to confidently move into a technology solution? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I So, you know, this was born out of COVID. I had left my job at, at Telus Communications and I knew I wanted to get into the space. And I knew I had talked to so many people. They're like, I have an idea for an app. I'm like, yeah, so do I. I have 10 ideas for an app. Who doesn't have an idea for an app? Tell me one person. I bet you've never, I bet you can't. <laughs> Everyone does. And so I did know some people in this space just from networks, people that I've worked with. And uh, one morning I just woke up. I'm like, you know what? This is my idea. I started drawing up the wireframes and I, I need to send you my OG wireframes because they are hella embarrassing. But I brought that to a well-known CTO, my, my CTO, Raj Gini. And, and I told him, like, I hit him up before and I'm like, hey, I got this idea for this app. And, and he's like, oh, okay. Like, you got an idea for an app, so everybody else. And, and then I'm like, no, no, like, I literally have it all. It's, I have it full concept. Here's the screen. And he's like, well, these are pretty pedestrian, but like, you got an idea here. And I'm like, yes, they do. So yeah, the, that's, that's how it started. In terms of building the team, it was all networking. And I took every single meeting that I could take with anybody that would talk to me. But actually the way that a lot of it happened. So with my background in PR and marketing, I used to do a lot of market research where I told focus groups, I'd hold one-on-one -on -one questionnaires with whatever our target audience was. So that's how I started it. And I drew the wireframe and then I held about 200 plus either one-on-ones or 10 plus person focus groups to understand, here's what I'm thinking. Would this help you? Would this be a value? Sent them surveys after so they could anonymous, anonymously reply and say, yes, this would be a value of me or no, this wouldn't be. No, I wouldn't use it. So use that to pivot. But that also resulted in me meeting a lot of people that are part of my, minus my lawyer who I met in Salida on a random trip in Mexico. So like there's that just kismet thing that yeah. happened. <laughs> but I think if somebody is setting out to solve a problem or provide an opportunity for a set of people, 
it wouldn't be doing themselves justice if, unless they, they hunted down and talked to as many people in that audience as possible for two reasons. Obviously, you're going to figure out the nuance of that community, of that audience, but you're also maybe going to make some really great connections through it. And that's how I built the team that I have now. That's a, such a great insight. Just, I want to close that off because so many of folks that are listening to this, you have to slow down in the beginning to really get in front of your customer. Just because it's easy to hire a remote team and start building an app doesn't mean you should. And the discipline and sort of the anxiety of slowing down is something I think founders need to get used to because so much of the end product can be decided just in PowerPoint and wireframes and some really smart customer engagement. And most customers, when they set it up properly, don't need a functioning app to tell you what they think. They'll tell you on a nap to sketch if you give them the opportunity. To. So I love that, that you broke that down with your experience on getting 200 plus people to just look at wireframes and give feedback early on. I, like, I'm going to tell you right now, if I didn't, I, and I'm still learning, I'm still learning from my audience. We pivoted in a major way not too long ago, like three months ago, where we're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to start tethering our users to, to geolocations within our map so that they have something to congregate around because before we didn't have that. And, and it was still a viable idea, but now it's even more viable. And now we're looking at more ways that, that we can, that we can improve and bring more value to this really unique community. I think it's, uh, you can never stop learning and you can't be afraid to pivot no matter if it's going to slow you up or not, because if you're not talking to your audience, you don't understand them. You're going to fail. Like a, Simple as that. It's, just, it's so simple. And that's an interesting point that you raised. I was just thinking, we listen to podcasts, you listen to successful business entrepreneurs, business owners, and things like that. People don't talk about their failures, their mistakes, the things that they would have done differently. And you've referenced now, you said you would fail, you can fail. Were there any failures, mistakes, or in, your, in this time, this first year of operation? Yeah. So I'm counting my blessings because I haven't fallen flat on my face yet in any major way. But there's so many things that looking back now, I would tweak. So one of the things that I've done, and I would recommend this to anybody who's out there investing, is understanding how to automate your life. There's so many good automation tools out there, but me being just working as fast as I can, I was using a, a CRM tool, a lead generation tool for LinkedIn to reach out to investors. And I didn't really dive into all of the functionality that could have been or that I could have working for me. And as an ideas person, it's really easy to get up here when sometimes you really need to get your hands dirty. And I found that that's an example, but there's lots of other examples that I probably have of that since being in year one. Other places that I've failed is a hundred percent talking. Can I say talking out of my ass? Am I allowed to say that? Okay. Yeah, talking out of my ass and pretending I knew the answer to something when I didn't know the answer because people will see right through you. And I'm really speaking from an investor relations standpoint. I think bringing humility to those, as I mentioned earlier, is super important. Don't answer something that you don't know. Um, you will get called out on it and it'll probably lead to that person passing on the opportunity. Also, I would say that, and sorry, I'm, I'm deep in investor stuff right now. So that's like super topical and top of mind. So that's probably why I'm talking a lot about it. But I would say that it's definitely super important 
to understand the reasons why someone might not want to invest with you or might not want to be part of your program or your part of your project instead of just letting them go and say, hey, it's not for me. It's not part of my strategy. It's not part of my portfolio or this is not something I would use. Like those are the people that you need to concentrate on. And I think I neglected that quite a bit after I started talking to these, like after I got kind of market validation from 200 plus people, ignoring the dissenting voices. And those are the voices that you need to listen to. So yeah, I've been pretty fortunate. I'm waiting for the time where the other shoe drops. And I like, we, we almost ran out of money like a month ago. So that was terrifying because 60% of startups run out of money in their first year. So we were very close, but, and so I think paying a close attention to your burn rate, your budget, listening to dissenting voices and being humble, telling everybody that you do not know what's going on when you don't, it's super important. I want to piggyback that into your investor talk, because I know that's the world you're living in right now. There's this, I guess, ego that trips up people of, I don't want to give up equity or I can bootstrap it or, or I don't want somebody to take my idea away. In your journey, when was the decision to go from bootstrap to investor happen? Is it, was it always by design or at some point you're like, hey, we need to scale and get investors. And then there's so many rule books and gurus out there about setting you up for investment. And I believe all of them don't actually know what they're talking about. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about looking back. How did you prepare for investor meetings? Was it truly like what they say on the internet with 99 phone calls to get one appointment to convert? Just walk us through a little bit about your experience. Yeah. So I would say that when it comes to volume of investor meetings, it, it is a numbers game. And I've talked to, I've met a lot of founders in my vertical who would say the same thing. And it is a numbers game, especially if you're in a weird niche like I am, right? I'm tech meets maritime, tech meets marine. And I wouldn't say that there's a ton of people that both understand the recreation and also understand tech. So we are looking for a needle in the haystack. Now that's not to say like there's hot, there's really hot industries right now, like SaaS, FinTech, obviously blockchain, crypto, all that, where it's very easy to get in front of some of these people because that's part of their strategy, their investment strategy. But it is absolutely a numbers game. And then back to the beginning of your question, I think when I set out to do this, I did have the money in the bank. I had been traveling for two years, living on like nothing, but like also making money. So I did have some money in the bank, but the, an app like this is going to cost a lot. I always knew that I would have to go to outside and done. So I did start working on my investment materials pretty early on. So it's important. I think it's always important to get somebody who knows finance in as soon as possible. That So my finance, my CFO, Nav, I talked to him probably more than I talk to anybody else. So I think that's important. So like getting someone in finance who understands cap tables, who understands projections, who understands RSU agreements, all that kind of stuff. It's super important, especially if you're not well-versed in that area. So I did set myself up early for that. And then I just started talking to other founders about how they were doing it. And that's how I learned CRM tools, using sales nav, lead generation, automation, super important. I, it's, it really depends on the vertical you're in and how hot it is. I would say mine's not hot right now. So I am looking for needle in the haystack type of investors. But if you're playing the numbers game and you're playing it right and you've automated it, you can get there. But I, I think uh, the biggest thing that everybody runs out of money, as I said earlier, I, I can't imagine many businesses that have so low overhead and so low startup costs that wouldn't need outside funding at some point. So I think it's something that everybody needs to plan for. 
Yeah. And if you're watching this or listening to this, there's no get rich scheme either. Every YouTube ad that targets me to become a reseller by taking a $39 course to make a hundred grand a month, it's all lies. Over to you. <laughs> I ignore all my Facebook friends with their MLM. Karen, <laughs> what has this journey taught you about yourself? That I'm a lot smarter than I thought I was. It's good. It's been a big vote of, con like vote of confidence for myself. I wouldn't consider myself an over, overly confident person. I would say I have a, a heap load of imposter syndrome. When I look back at what I've created, I'm like, holy shit. I have like the ex lead, technical lead at Twitter on my advisory board, freaking huge. And I don't think about that all the time. So I think it's taught me that I need to step back reflect a little bit about what I've created. It's definitely taught me that I'm more scrappy, more resourceful than I ever thought I could be. And that I'm a harder worker than I ever thought I could be when I'm doing something that I love. And I think that's the best part of entrepreneurialism. It's doing something that you love and doing it for yourself, because I can tell you right now, I've never worked harder, but I've never been happier. So that's a big part. I love that. And last question of the episode, what is the one skill that you're focused on developing this year? That's a great question. I need to get better at math. Listen, we have a Schoolio program for math that I'm going to send to you. <laughs> Our startups are going to help each other. I need it. I need to get better at math. I need, yeah, math, math. Just because I, that's one of the things, right? That the call I just got off of and she's, what are your cap table percentages? And like, how much, how much is left in your options pool? And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, gosh, darn it. I should know all these numbers off the top of my head. And it's not really so much math, but like, how do I train my memory to remember all the things, all the goddamn like little things that I need to remember for every conversation I have. But yeah, I would say that. And I need to get better at Facebook because I have forgotten. Yeah. And that's be a large part of where our audience is. Or whichever new hot platform it is. I'm learning TikTok from my 14 year old now. That's the hot spot. She's like, daddy, nobody does anything on Instagram. Like, okay, I got to go learn TikTok, but we're definitely going to check in with you on a future date on your math and your investment and the market growth. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Shannon. Really appreciate it. It's been great chatting to you. And the advice that you've given is amazing for all the people out there who's listening to the show. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Sathish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bluemex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit Bluemex.io to join us on Discord.